know, there's an old saying that you can't, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I have found that to be true. Lars discovering teaching an old dog like me new tricks is, is, is nearly impossible. And I think part of the reason is you get older, you kind of get comfortable, you kind of get set in your ways. There's, there's kind of a natural resistance to change. You know, culture shifting so fast, everybody's jumping on different bandwagons. You're like, I don't want to jump on that bandwagon. But then sometimes you realize that resistance is futile. And before you realize it, you're doing the very thing you were resistant to doing. For example, social media. I said for years, I would never get on social media. In fact, I've set up here and made bold proclamations like, if you're over the age of 30 and you're on social media, you're probably a pervert. You're probably up to something you shouldn't be doing, right? And so I'm, Laura would say, honey, you really get all, ought to get on social media. You can connect with the next generation. It's gonna make your ministry more effective. I resisted at all costs to get on social media. But guess what? I wrote a book and it's getting published and it's gonna be out in the next few weeks. And then Laura and I decided to launch an app. It's called Renewed. It's based on a series we did in the fall. We remember we talked about we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so we're taking the weekend message and Laura and I are writing devotionals for each day of the week. Uh, it's also gonna come with a memory verse that we're gonna encourage you to memorize each month that has to do, or each week that has to do with that topic so that your mind can be renewed. Uh, we're gonna be doing a podcast on that app, talk about what we've learned about marriage in 40 years and raising children and grandchildren and handling our finances. And so this is gonna be on this app. And Laura says, honey, nobody's gonna know about it if you don't get on social media. And so I gave in, resistance is futile. And now I'm on I'm social media with the rest of you perverts. I mean, it's an amazing thing, right? Another one of those areas is technology. You know, I, I, would, I would watch the news and I'd see all you sheep lined up around the Apple store, you know, waiting for the next shiny thing that was gonna come out. And I'm, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that. In fact, Laura says, why don't you use an iPod like Donnie when you do your message? Why do you use these old written notes? I'm like, cause I ain't doing that. I ain't doing, you don't teach, I've been doing it for 36 years. I'm not gonna start using an iPod now. I was the last person in America to get a cell phone. I would not get a cell phone for the longest time and my elder board would say, we need you to get a cell phone. And I'm like, why? They says, cause we need to be able to get hold of you anytime we wanna get hold of you. And I said, yeah, that's why I don't have a cell phone. Say, I, I don't want an electronic lease, but what happens? Resistance is futile, eventually you get a cell phone. And, but see, once you open the door, the floodgates, right? Do you know what I got Laura for Christmas? Alexa, in my house. I am sure that I am being spied on, but I now have Alexa in my house. And it's amazing how it's changed my life. See, I can get up in the morning and say, Alexa, what's the weather? And she says, if you weren't so stupid, you could look out the window and see that it's raining. And say, I don't know about your Alexa, mine has an attitude, right? But this is what Alexa has saved me from. I spent 60 years doing this turning off the light beside my bed. I can now lay in bed and say, Alexa, turn off Mike's bedside light, light goes out. Do you have any idea the energy and time I am now saving in life? I'm thinking about getting a part-time job. That's how much more time I have in my life now, just saying turn off my light because I'm too lazy to do it myself, right? Right? But you know, there's another area in our life where I'm learning that resistance is futile. It, it is futile to try and resist God. It is futile to try and resist what God wants to do in our lives. And if we're honest, we've all been there. We've all done that at some time in our life. And I, I think there are several reasons that we, we try to resist God, several reasons that we, we wanna say no to God. By, by the way, how dumb does that sound, to say no to God, right? But I think there are several reasons we try to resist God. Sometimes 
we just don't want to give up control of our lives. Sometimes I think it's because we're afraid that he's going to mess with certain areas in our life. Maybe we're in a relationship with, in a relationship that we're, we're pretty certain is not a God honoring relationship, but if God gets too close, he's going to mess with the relationship. Or maybe it's a habit. You know, you shouldn't have it, but you kind of enjoy it. You don't want God to mess with it. Or maybe you just don't want God to mess with your finances, your money. But sometimes I think we resist God because we're mad at him. And I think we often get mad at God because he doesn't do something that we think he should have done. Maybe it's because he didn't heal somebody that we wanted healed or he didn't change something that we wanted changed. And we kind of have the attitude, he is God. He could have done it if he wanted to. He just decided not to. And because of that, I'm mad at God. I'm angry at God. I'm disappointed with God. I'm ticked off at God. And so we want to resist God. We kind of want to shut him out of our lives. And I think we've all been there. And maybe some of you, maybe that's where you are this weekend. But over the next couple of weeks leading up to Easter and actually including Easter weekend, we're going to look at some key individuals that played a role in the overall story. And all of these individuals, uh, for their own reason and in their own way, you're going to see that they resisted God. They said no to God. And as we look over these stories the next couple of weeks, this is what you're going to be thinking. You're going to be, you're thinking, how dumb can you be to say no to God? How dumb can you be to resist God? Can't you see what's about to happen? But I think what we're going to discover over the next few weeks is that there's a little bit of these guys in all of us. And hopefully we're going to learn that as ridiculous as it was for these individuals to attempt to resist God in their circumstances, it is equally ridiculous for us to attempt to resist God in our circumstances. By the way, we're also going to see as we look at these stories that by resisting God, these individuals actually played into the plan of God that they were so desperately trying to stop. In other words, in their attempt to say, no, God, you will not have your way. God had his way and actually used them in the process of having his way. And do you know why? And here's the lesson that we all need to learn in case you have to leave early or you don't like me and you're never coming back again. So let me just go ahead and give you the overall lesson. God is in control and his plan will not be stopped. God is in control and his plan will not be stopped. To resist God is futile. As we've been singing this weekend at our campuses, he truly is, once he sets his mind to something, unstoppable. Now we're gonna begin this weekend uh, at the series by looking at a man named Caiaphas. Let me give you just a little bit of background. Caiaphas was the most powerful man in Israel at this time in the first century. Several reasons he was so powerful. One, he was powerful because of his position. Caiaphas was the high priest of Israel. That means that he was the one Jewish person who could once a year go into the, most, the innermost part of the temple. He could go into this place that was known as the Holy of Holies. It was the most sacred place on earth because in this time in history, that is where the presence of God dwelt. And once a year, the high priest, he could go there to ask forgiveness for the nation of Israel. You know what that means? That means that he got physically closer to God than any other person on earth. On top of that, he was also president of the Sanhedrin. That was the lawmakers of the Jews. That was like their Congress. That made Caiaphas the civil leader of the Jews. But he was also powerful because he had been appointed by Rome to represent the Jewish nation to the Roman Empire. He was the go-between. He was, he was the peacemaker. You remember at this time, the Jews were living under Roman authority. So Caiaphas, he was very, very powerful. He was a man, as you're going to see in the story this weekend, he is used to getting his way. But what's interesting, unlike most high priests, Caiaphas was able to maintain his position 
for 18 years. To put that in perspective, the average high priest in Israel lasted about three to four years. Caiaphas was able to hang on for 18 years because of his negotiating ability and because of his power. And he was committed to staying in that place of power, as you're going to see, regardless of what it cost him. But if you know the story, you know he met his match in a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus. And when Jesus came onto the scene, Jesus immediately began to gather a following. He was feeding people. He was healing people. He was, he was teaching people. And what's interesting, if you read the Gospels, every time Jesus would heal someone, often he would say, go show yourselves to the Pharisees. You ever notice, wonder why he said that? Go show yourself to the Pharisees. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, he would be in his palace, you know, watching March Madness, and he would get a knock on his door. And it would, he'd open the door and it would be another person who had been healed by Jesus. Maybe yesterday they were crippled, but today they could walk. Yesterday they were blind, today they could see. Yesterday she had leprosy, but today she's been cured. And the reason that Jesus sent these people to the Pharisees was because it was the Pharisees' job to identify for the people of Israel who the Messiah was. And since Jesus figures he's walking around Palestine telling everyone that he's the Messiah, that means that it was their job to investigate Jesus and determine, is this guy really the Messiah? And so understand, every day, Caiaphas and his cohorts, they, they were having people walk to the door and reminding them that there was a man on the loose claiming to be the Messiah. And as Jesus' popularity continued to grow and as his influence over the people continued to increase the problem was Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin slowly began to feel their power and their influence starting to erode. And so they did everything within their power to quiet Jesus. They did everything they could to discredit Jesus. But when you get to John chapter 11, Jesus performs a miracle that nobody can ignore. And all of a sudden it forces Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin to consider actions. I am 100% confident that they never thought that they would consider. By the way, let me just say this before we look at John chapter 11. The problem with Jesus, according to the, to the Sanhedrin, wasn't his theology, although that's what they claim. The problem they had with Jesus wasn't his ancestry, that he claimed to be born of a virgin, although that's, that's what they claim. Their problem with Jesus was this. They knew that if Jesus continued to do what he was doing, they were gonna lose what they valued the most. They were gonna lose their power. They were gonna lose their place. They were gonna lose their status. They were gonna lose their position. And so they did what we all do and what we've worked so hard to accomplish in our lives, what we've worked so hard to attain when we realize that it's beginning to slip away. They resorted to the only way they knew to keep control, maintain control, and it was to leverage their influence, their power, their status, their position for their own selfish ambition. Did you bring a Bible this weekend? Turn with me to John chapter 11. Great story. One of my favorite stories in all the Gospels. John chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, download the Get Hope app. It will have all the verses we look at every weekend. It has the main points that we're going to have in the message. If you didn't bring your Bible, you don't want to download your app. We're going to put the verses on the screen. John eleven forty five. Let me bring you up to speed. When you get to John chapter 11, Jesus pulls off the ultimate miracle. He raises his dead friend Lazarus from the dead. Now, up, understand, up until this point, 
Jesus has gone public with his ministry. He's preached a lot of messages. He's healed, he's fed a lot of people. But then Jesus crosses the line and he does more than anyone ever imagined that he would do. He stood outside of the tomb of his friend who had been dead for four days and Jesus called Lazarus and Lazarus walked out of that tomb. Now understand there were a lot of skeptics there because this happened in Bethany and there were a lot of visitors who came to the home of Mary and Martha. They were Lazarus' uh, sisters to, to visit them, to, to mourn with them, to share their condolences. And they were skeptics, but they were standing there and observing as Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. And when Lazarus walked out, they're like, that's it. We're in. We believe. We believe. We don't care what the religious leaders have to say about Jesus. We know Lazarus. We watched his life slip away. We watched him die. We watched him take his left, last breath. We prepared his body and put it in that tomb four days ago. And we heard Jesus tell him to come out. And he came out and we saw it with our own eyes. We're with Jesus. Anybody that can raise somebody from the dead, we want to be on his team. We don't really care what the Pharisees have to say. Now understand, the word of this began to spread like wildfire. And when you get to John chapter 11, verse 45, it says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, this isn't the mother of Mary, this is the sister of Lazarus, and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So understand, the Pharisees, they got these little spies following Jesus around. And they're constantly showing, yeah, yesterday he healed a lame guy. Yesterday he healed somebody who was blind. So this day they show up and they said, man, we got some bad news. You guys better sit down. They said, oh no, don't tell us he walked on water again. We still haven't explained that away. And they're like, oh, it's worse than that. He raised somebody from the dead. And then it says in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting. See, that's what we do when we don't know what to do, right? We call a meeting. They called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now look at this. What are we accomplishing, they asked. In other words, guys, this isn't going the way we thought it was going to go. We've leveraged our power. We've leveraged our, influ our influence. We've done everything we can to shut this guy down. And everything we've tried has failed. We've asked him every hard question we can think of. And he always has an answer. We've put him into every situation we can, not thinking that he could get out of it, but he always gets out of it. We try the whole tax thing. We thought we had him there. Who do you give your money to? Do you give it to God? Do you give it to Caesar? But he had an answer for that. We had, you know, we said, remember when we said, hey, the woman that had seven husbands, hey, what happens if they all die and show up in heaven? Who's going to be her husband? That didn't even stump him. We have tried everything to embarrass him in front of the people. We're not getting anywhere with this guy. What are we accomplishing? Now, see, we hear this, reread this 2,000 years later, and this is what we think. He's feeding the multitudes with a couple of pieces of fish and bread. He's healing people. He's walking on water. He's raising people from the dead. Hmm. Why didn't they just go with it? Why didn't they just say, you know what? We had our doubts, but we really do believe that this guy is the Messiah. It seems so obvious, right? Well, understand, it's because there was something in them that when their world was being threatened and everything that they had worked so hard to build was being tampered with, suddenly, instead of just going with it, you know what they did? 
they went into damage, con damage control mode and they began to consider things that they never thought that they would consider in order to be able to control the outcome. In fact, notice what it says in verse, verse 47. Here is this man performing many signs, verse 48. If we let him go on like this. Now I'm gonna tell you, that may be the most arrogant statement in the New Testament. If we let him go on like this. It was as if Jesus was doing what he was able to do, the miracles, the healing, the feeding, all of the things he was able to do because they were allowing it. In other words, these are people who because of their influence, their position, their power, they had actually convinced themselves that they controlled outcomes. They had actually convinced themselves that the only reason Jesus could do what he was doing was because they hadn't yet put an end to it because in their minds, it was within their control and it was in their, within their power to do so. Verse 48, look what he says. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Now understand, it's at this point of the story where it begins to intersect with our lives, because let me just say this, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, just like we saw in the series with Abraham, just like we saw Donnie, we saw Donnie pointed out with Daniel. Anytime you look at these Old Testament characters, Joseph, I'm promising you this, you can just take this to the bank. There's gonna be a time in your life where God is going to test you. And following Jesus is gonna cost you something. Now, so you go to a lot of churches and they'll just tell you it's gonna get better and better and better and better and you're gonna get richer and richer and richer and you're always gonna be healthy and happy. But I'm telling you right now, you follow Jesus long enough, there is gonna come a point when it is going to cost you something. Something's gonna invade your life and it is going to rock your world. It may pertain to your health, it may pertain to your wealth, your career, maybe a relationship, a business you started, but I'm telling you, something's gonna come along and you're gonna feel like it's beginning to slip away. And as Christians, in that moment, we have to decide, am I gonna follow Jesus? Am I gonna really trust Jesus? Or am I gonna go into damage control mode? Am I gonna take matters into my own hands? Am I going to abandon my morality, my ethics, my integrity in order to protect and to hold on to what I have worked so hard to accomplish, what I have worked so hard to attain. I'm telling you, we're all gonna come to that point. And in some way, the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, they've come to this crossroads. And so these guys respond in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then, and this is what they feared most, the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. In other words, we've gotta stop Jesus because if he continues to do what he's doing, guys, we got a lot to lose. We're gonna lose our place in society. We're gonna lose our wealth. We're gonna lose our big homes. We're gonna lose our status. We can't let that happen. So what are we gonna do? Verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, there's our man, there's our guy of the hour, who was high priest that year, spoke up, you know nothing at all. So Caiaphas is listening to these guys. He's like, you guys are idiots. You guys are stupid. You guys don't understand the power we hold. You don't understand the control we leverage. Have you forgotten who we are? We are the all-powerful Sanhedrin. I am the high 
priest, we have all kinds of leverage and all kinds of opportunities to protect what's ours. Verse 50, you do not realize that it is better for you. Not the nation of Israel, not the people of Israel. It's better for you, it's better for me. Caiaphas says it's better for us that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And I believe that when Caiaphas uttered those words, I believe just a total hush fell over the Sanhedrin. I think they were like, die? <laughs> Come on, Caiaphas, whoa, man, wait a second. Yeah, we like our status and perks and power. And we like our big houses, but die? I mean, Caiaphas, you would really go so far to have an innocent man killed in order for us to protect what we feel like is ours? To which Caiaphas responded, of course I would. I mean, what other choice do we have? Do you want to lose all we've worked for because of a carpenter from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And apparently they responded, I guess not. I mean, not when you put it that way, right? And so it says in verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And you know the story. Eventually they had him arrested on trumped up charges and they convinced Pilate to crucify him. So they wouldn't lose what they had worked so hard to attain. And you hear this story and you think, wow, these were some bad dudes. I mean, it's like the Russian mafia, it sounds like, right? But here's the principle. And I got to tell you, it applies to every one of us listening, whether you're a Christian or not. Here's the principle. When you begin to believe in your life, I am who I am because of me. Or when you begin to believe I got to where I am in life on my own. Then you need to understand with that assumption comes the pressure to maintain it all on your own. And I'll just tell you, if you live that way for too long, eventually when things begin to crumble and when things begin to erode, you will do whatever it takes to maintain what you have worked so hard to attain. And that desire, that desire has the potential to drive you to all kinds of unhealthy extremes because if you believe that you got to where you are in life by your own efforts, you have no choice but to trust in your own efforts to maintain what you've attained. And that's why we look around or watch the news every day and we see people that sacrifice their reputation, people who will sacrifice their integrity, their morals to say what they feel is theirs because when they're painted into a corner, they feel like, I don't really have any other choice. You see it all the time in politics. You see it in the business world. You see it in relationships. In fact, I've especially seen this with single adults. They finally got that guy. They finally got that girl they worked so hard to get. But then they sense one day that the relationship's beginning to fall apart. It's going south. It wasn't supposed to be like this. It's starting to unravel. And because they felt the pressure to make the relationship work, they also felt the pressure to maintain the relationship. And I've watched and many times counseled these men and women, and I've watched them go to all kinds of unhealthy extremes not to lose the person that they worked so hard to get. And I've watched them go outside the boundaries that God established for their life 
And I've seen them do things that they never thought that they would do in order to protect and control the relationship. And it's because they feel like, I can't let him go. I can't let her go. And if this is what I need to do to protect the relationship, if this is what I need to do to save the relationship, this is what I'll do. But do you understand what happens when we think that way? We end up at odds with God when we need him the most. We end up in a wrestling match with God. And I got to tell you, it is a wrestling match that no one has ever won. And in the end, we simply underscore what God is trying to, be, what God is trying to tell us all along. And it's simply this. We don't control situations. We don't control outcomes. We don't control anything. God is in control. God is unstoppable. And we're left to accept, like Job, if you read the story of Job, remember he lost everything, his servants, his livestock, all 10 of his children. And when he was questioned about it, remember what he said? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Here's the principle that we have to get to, we have to understand. This is it. This is where I want us to get to as a congregation. I will not abandon the principles of God in order to try and maintain the blessing of God. Let me say that again. I will not abandon the principles of God in order to try and maintain the blessings of God. We got to get to the place as Christians where we are willing to say, I believe that God gave this relationship to me. I believe that God gave this job to me. I believe that God gave this business to me. I believe that God gave this opportunity to me. And because I believe that, even when I sense that it is all slipping away, I will not abandon the principles of God in order to try and maintain the blessing of God. I will believe and live by the principle that God gives and God takes away. But at the end of the day, I will not find myself at odds with God, even if I lose everything. I mean, imagine if we would take that perspective into every arena of life. Think about it. The next time you have a business deal, what if your attitude was, I am going to work as hard as I can. I am going to, I'm going to do this deal, work this deal the best of my ability. And if the deal happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I'm not going to wake up tomorrow at odds with God. Or I've done everything I can to save this relationship. But I refuse to go to unhealthy extremes to make it happen. I am not going to sacrifice my morality. I'm not going to sacrifice my integrity. I'm not going to sacrifice my ethics to hang on to this person because my goal is to wake up every morning and be at peace with God. And if it works out, great. But my number one responsibility in life is simply to obey God. I don't control outcomes. I am not responsible for outcomes. That's God's job. By the way, do you know what the ultimate irony is in the story of Caiaphas? He hated Jesus so much that he sacrificed everything he stood for. He sacrificed everything that he believed religiously to get rid of him. He made up the charges. He got Jesus nailed to the cross. In other words, he broke all of his own laws to make sure that he protected himself. But do you want to know what happened at the end of the story? A few years later, the Romans took away his power and his status, and there wasn't a thing in the world that Caiaphas could do about it. And then about 30 years later, 
the Roman emperor, Titus, came in and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And not only did they destroy it, they made sure that it would never be rebuilt. In fact, the last time I was in Israel, I got this picture. Those are the stones from the temple that have been sitting there since 70 AD. Until this day, the temple has never been rebuilt. So think about this. Caiaphas, in his attempt to stop the will of God, was actually instrumental in accomplishing the will of God. Because understand, when Jesus died on the cross, there wasn't any longer any need for sacrifices to take care, to be taken care of in the temple. Jesus was sacrificed once and for all. He was the ultimate sacrifice. And so Caiaphas, in his attempt to control and protect, literally put himself out of business by sacrificing the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And his legacy ended up being the exact opposite of what he was trying to accomplish. And I can tell you this, our legacy will be the same because God's plan will not be stopped. He, it is a juggernaut, what he wants to do in your life, he is going to do. Resistance is futile. Now here's the good news. Since you didn't make yourself into who you are in this world, you're not responsible for maintaining your place and position in this world. You know what our responsibility as Christians is? This just makes it very, very simple. It is to go to bed every night and say, if I win, I win. If I lose, I win. Because my responsibility is to be obedient to God and simply trust him with the outcome. Here's the question I want you to ask yourself as we wrap it up this weekend. Next weekend, we'll look at We'll look at Judas. And Judas was a negotiator. You ever negotiate with God? God, if I do this, will you do this? God, if you'll do this, I'll do this. See, we're no different than Judas. We're gonna see that next week. But this is the question I want you to think about this week. Where in your life are you sacrificing what you know is right in order to try and control the outcome? By the way, do you, as a Christian, when you do that, you probably don't think of it this way, but do you realize what you're saying? You're saying, God, I'm going to have to take over this issue because, God, to be honest with you, you can't handle this. This is too big for you. I mean, I know you created the sun, the moon, the stars, the universe. I know that you created over 600 beetles, no two snowflakes are alike, that every caterpillar has 228 distinct and, and special muscles in their heads. God, I know you're incredible. You can do all this kind of stuff, but God, you can't handle this. God, you can't handle my marriage. God, you can't handle this relationship. You can't handle my job. God, you can't handle my finances. It's way too big for you. And right now, this is what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Mike, I would never say that. But you know what? We do it every time, we, every time that we decide, I can't leave this up to God. I gotta grab, I gotta take hold of the reins because if I don't, it's just not gonna happen. But you gotta understand, when we do that, we're gonna discover the exact same thing that Caiaphas discovered. We don't control outcomes, God does. And our responsibility is to simply wake up every day and just be obedient. Just be obedient. And if we win, we win. And if we lose, we win. Because our responsibility is to be obedient to God 
and just trust him with the outcome. Let's bow together. You know, this question probably goes a lot deeper. What areas in my life um, am I sacrificing on in order to try the outcome? Because on the surface, you may, you may glance and say, oh, I don't really see anything. I think I'm okay in this area. But I bet if you went home and spent a day or two thinking about it, you would probably identify several. I did. I did. Because when I prepare these messages, I only usually prepare them if I think I got it down. Of course, I would never preach anything if that were the case. But I sat in my office on Thursday and I wrote down three rather significant areas in my life where I thought, wow. There are times that I try to take the reins into my own hands and I try to control and manipulate outcomes. And I learn every time that God's unstoppable. God's unstoppable. And so the last few days, I've tried to put this into practice by praying, God, if I win, I win. If I lose from my perspective, but I'm obedient from your perspective, I win. You know what that's called? Faith. Trust. And that's the life that God has called us to. Father, help us to, through the power and the light of your Holy Spirit, examine every little dark corner, crevice in our lives. Father, I think often we come to you and we kind of we want to negotiate with you. We kind of have the idea of, we use the analogy of the house. God, God, you can have everything in the house except the second floor. And you keep working on us until we say, okay, you can have the second floor, but you can't have the master bedroom. And you continue to work and we finally surrender the master bedroom, but we don't want to give up the closet. And then we give up the closet, but we don't want to give off up the shelf, the top shelf in the closet. And then we don't want to give up the box that's sitting on the shelf in the closet. And Father, how much easier instead of going through that wrestling match with you to just come to the place where we say, God, you are all powerful and you're sovereign. And even as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, God, this is what I want. If there's any way we can avoid this cross, if there's any way I can avoid having to experience taking on all the sins of the world, let's go with plan B. But if there is no plan B, it's not my will but your will be done. Father, get us there. Get our hearts there. Get our minds there. Get our lives there. And you, we will give you the glory for how you are going to explode through your spirit in our lives and do great things for you. In your name we pray, amen.